and Elsie O'Shaughnessy, I'm pleased to say, were in complete agreement. A great story in one way, but also a story we would have always regretted breaking. Even when I did go to Australia for the magazine some time later, I took care to leave the woman's accusing dossier behind. Like a number of other people in Washington, I had heard a third-hand version of her tale during the election of 1992. In the briefly famous documentary The War Room, which hymns the spinning skills of thugs like James Carville, George Stephanopoulos can be seen live on the telephone, deftly fending off a nutcase Ross Perot supporter who has called in about the bastard. The caller may not have said black bastard, but one didn't have to be unduly tender-minded to notice that Clinton, however much he tried to charm and woo them, still had enemies on the right. Some of these enemies had allowed themselves to become infected, or were infected already, with the filthy taint of racism. That seemed an additional reason for maintaining a certain reserve. I wasn't to know that by the middle of 1998, Clinton's hacks would be using the bigotry of some of his critics, in the same way that Johnny Cochran had employed the sick racist cop Mark Fuhrman to change the subject and to whiten the sepulchre. Just as the Republican case against the President seemed to be lapsing into incoherence in the first days of 1999, Matt Drudge uncorked the black baby again. Indeed, he curtain-raised this non-exclusive at the annual gathering of the cultural and political right held in San Diego as a rival attraction to the pulverizing tedium and self-regard of the Clintonian Renaissance weekend at Hilton Head. Once put to the most perfunctory forensic test, The whole story collapsed within the space of twenty-four hours. Mr. Clinton's DNA, famously found dabbled on the costly gap garment of a credulous intern, was sufficiently knowable from the indices of the Star Report for a preliminary finding to be possible. There was nothing like a match between the two genetic attributes. Once again, and for reasons of professional rather than political feeling, I felt glad that Graydon Carter and I had put privacy and scruples that arose partly from the fatherhood of our own daughters, ahead of sensation all those years ago. Still, I couldn't but notice that White House spokesmen, when bluntly asked about the Drudge story by reporters, reacted as if it could be true. There was nothing about their leader, they seemed to convey, by the etiolated remains of their body language, that might not one day need a privacy defence, however hastily or wildly concocted. It turned out, however, that Mr. Drudge had done them another unintended favour. Nothing is more helpful to a person with a record of economising with the truth than a false and malicious and disprovable allegation. And Drudge, whose want of discrimination in this respect is almost a trademark, openly says that he'll print anything and let the customers decide what's actually kosher. This form of pretended consumer sovereignty is fraudulent in the same way that its analogues are. It means, for one thing, that you have no right to claim that you were correct or truthful or brave. All you did was pass it on like a leaker or some other kind of conduit. The death of any intelligent or principled journalism is foreshadowed by such promiscuity. In the old days, true enough, the Washington Press Corps was a megaphone for official sources. Now it's a megaphone for official sources and traders from the toilet.
Just such a symbiosis, comparable to his effectless equidistance between left and right, Republican and Democrat, white-collar crime and blue-collar crime, true and false, sacred and profane, bought and paid for, public and private, quid and quo, happened to serve Mr. Clinton well on the day in January 1998 that his presidency went into eclipse, or seemed about to do so. He made the most ample possible use of the natural retinence and decency that is felt by people who open a bedroom or bathroom door without knocking, and this even though he was the occupant of said bathroom and bedroom. He also made a masterly use of the apparent contrast between the trivial and the serious. But on this occasion, and having watched it for some years, I felt confident that I could see through his shell game. On the first day, and in the presence of witnesses, I said, This time he's going to be impeached. And in support of my own much underrated and even mocked prescience, I will quote what the Los Angeles Times was kind enough to print under my name.